0: So glad again to have all of you here with us today. It's been a great blessing and joy to me, and I certainly enjoyed listening to you sing. There is nothing like the people of God in the house of God singing praises to God, and it's just a great, great time of rejoicing. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for quite a while. This is actually message number 28. In the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 7 in just a moment. We may do, we're going to do a little, uh, one little thing we'll probably take a look at uh, before we get to Mark 7, but you can turn there if you want and hold your finger there, Gospel of Mark in chapter 7. Many years ago in the late 1970s, uh, before the Lord placed me into the ministry as a missionary pastor, I was a teacher in a Christian school. Uh, That's where I met Carol. She was teaching third grade. I was teaching history, English, and Bible in junior, senior high school classes. Uh, The administration threw into my schedule an eighth grade earth science class one year, uh, which actually I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I have always loved the earth sciences, biology, the biology of the animal world, weather systems and patterns, astronomy, uh, not astrology, now astronomy, and, uh, and geology and geography some of you who know me well enough to know i'm kind of a map freak all kinds of maps uh, but mainly i taught classes in the areas of history english and bible at the junior senior high level and in my preparation for one of my upper level english grammar classes i was teaching my students that all of our basic writing forms that we use today originated in the greek culture And it suddenly dawned on me that all of those forms appear in the New Testament. And why wouldn't they? The New Testament was originally written in Greek. And all those literary forms existed in the first century when Jesus and the apostles were walking this earth. The Gospels are biographies. The life stories of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is a historical documentary of the first 25-30 years of the New Testament church. All of the epistles, as we call them formally, that's just an old word for letters, the personal letters of the apostles Paul, Peter, and John, along with James and Jude, they're all constructed in the same way that I was teaching my English students the proper format for what we called in those days the friendly letter, uh, with a heading, an opening reading, the body of the letter, divided into paragraphs, closing remarks, and a signature, of course, in our modern digital world, the friendly letter seems to be going the way of the dinosaurs, unfortunately. I don't even know if they teach you guys that anymore. But, uh, you know, a, a, a friendly text message just isn't quite the same as a friendly letter. Uh, it, uh, it lacks the warmth of a friendly letter. Uh, so, you know, sociologists tell us that we are more connected digitally than we have ever been. Yet we are lonelier than we have ever been. More ways to connect, yet more loneliness, especially among teenagers and young adults. But in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we are, of course, studying the biography of the Lord Jesus Christ, the life story of our Savior, and I trust He is your Savior. If you're not sure if He's your Savior, I'd love to explain to you how you can be sure. But in this biography of the Lord Jesus, we see life event after life event We see the life purpose of the Lord Jesus unfolding through these biographies. Uh, We see the the character and the wisdom and the compassion and the unselfishness and the mercy and the perfections of the Lord Jesus all wrapped up in his life story, in his biography. The gospel writers have told us the story of Jesus one event after another, and in telling a story, it's always helpful to get the big picture so that we know how this particular event fits into the full story. That's what I've tried to do with you as we've worked our way through Mark's gospel. The background of what we're going to read today is that for for well over a year now, the Lord Jesus has ministered in the region of Galilee. Galilee is the northern part of the land of Israel. The southern part is called Judea. The great city of Jerusalem is in the southern part in Judea. The north, a more rural area, has as its main feature this lake that we call the Sea of Galilee. Life in Galilee kind of revolves around the lake. There's a number of small towns and villages in that area. But it's primarily an agricultural area, big production area for wheat and barley and grapes and figs and olives, as, as well as the huge commercial fishing industry that Peter and Andrew and James and John and perhaps other disciples have been a part of. So for close to a year and a half, the Lord Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. And what he's currently doing in our study of Jesus' biography as he has left Galilee, and he is traveling through Gentile, non-Jewish regions, he is staying away from the massive crowds, or trying to, he is teaching his disciples in quieter settings. He's going to loop back around to Galilee, we'll see today, he's going to spend a little more time there, and then when we get to chapter 10 in verse 1, he leaves Galilee, and he goes to Judea, and he spends the final months of his ministry going through the towns and villages of the southern part of israel ending up in jerusalem with his entry into the city presenting himself to the people as the messiah the promised savior being rejected by most everyone and in the eternal plan of god being crucified for our sin the following week and rising again from the dead We saw last week Jesus cross the border to the northwest of Israel. He enters Gentile territory, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Today we're going to see him leaving there and traveling southeast into what is called Decapolis, where he's going to do some more miraculous things. I know that many of you were here with us last week, but I just want to emphasize again, and we'll see it again today, that the eternal purpose of God has always been to redeem people, to save people, to transform people, to bring into his kingdom people from every ethnic group on the planet. We saw that very clearly last week. We'll see it again today in God's amazing grace and kindness and compassion toward Gentiles, toward non-Jewish people. So let's read in our text here. Mark chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 31, and we're going to go right into chapter 8 and verse 10. So, Mark 7, verse 31 through chapter 8 and verse 10. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. There they brought to him one who was deaf and had had an impediment to his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephatha, meaning be opened, it's a, that is an Aramaic word. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it, of course. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well." He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and he gave thanks, and broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. The Gospel of Matthew records that was the men plus women and children. And he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Tyre and Sidon, as I said to you a moment ago, they are northwest of Galilee, Decapolis is southeast of Galilee, so Jesus has made a great big circle. He's hiked through the mountains of southern Lebanon, as we would know it. He's crossed the Jordan River. He's now coming down the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee into this Gentile area called Decapolis. That's a Greek word meaning ten cities. Deca is ten, as many of you know, and decameter, ten meters, or decathlon, ten competitions. Athlon is the word for competition or contest. So, Deca is 10. Polis is the Greek word for city, as in metropolis, the main city. So, Decapolis, a region with 10 cities. Jesus shows up there. He gets mobbed again. How do they know who he is? He's never been in Decapolis before. It's the first time he's ever showed up. They have obviously heard about him, but how? Well, we read back in chapter 3 many, many weeks ago that people had come from east of the Jordan to hear Jesus preach and perform miracles. So I'm sure some of them were probably from Decapolis, which is east of the Jordan. But we have to remember, and I know we've told you this. In fact, I talked about this several weeks ago in chapter 5. You remember the the demon-possessed maniac who was possessed by thousands of demons, who was running around naked, living in the cemeteries, cutting himself, screaming all hours of the night, who was uncontrollable and violent. And Jesus casts the demons out of him, and he allows the demons to go into this herd of 2,000 pigs, and the demons drown the pigs in the Sea of Galilee. You were with us that Sunday. I'm sure you remember that event from chapter 5. Well, that demon-possessed maniac had been delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to join the disciples, and he wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus told him, no, he said, you go home to your friends and tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you, and how he had compassion on you. And it says right in the text here in chapter 5, the demon-possessed maniac, when he went home, you know where he went? He went to Decapolis. And he began to proclaim all that Jesus has done for him. So here we are now about a year later. Jesus shows up in Decapolis and he gets mobbed by crowds of people bringing their their friends to him to be healed. My only guess is the demon-possessed maniac who had been delivered from demonic power must have done a pretty good job of evangelizing. Because everybody seems to know who Jesus is and what he can do. So they bring in, in the process of all these people being being brought to Jesus, they, they bring this fellow to him who is deaf and who is mute. That is, he can't speak correctly. Or he can't and you know, most deaf people cannot speak correctly or pronounce correctly because they can't hear. That's how we learn to speak. We copy the sounds we hear from the people around us. If you can't hear the sounds, then it's very hard to hear, to, to speak clearly. And so, in fact, with one funny story. I won't tell you the whole story, but Carol said something to me last night, and I had already taken my hearing aids out. And I absolutely, totally missed the, the very most important word in the sentence. Uh, we got that ironed out after a while, but she's trying to figure out why I am acting like I'm acting or why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, it's because I totally missed the most important word in the sentence. You see, if you can't hear, then you can't speak correctly. If you can't hear, then, then you, you, you cannot understand what people are saying. So they bring this guy to the Lord Jesus who is deaf, and he doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on. He can't speak correctly. He doesn't even know what they're doing to him because there's this massive crowd of people. They grab him, they bring him up, they stick him up in front of Jesus. He doesn't know what's going on. He can't hear. And you know, it's, it, it's, it's quite interesting to see the compassion of Jesus in all of this. Deaf people are often thought to be insane or mentally damaged because of their inability to communicate. They were isolated. They were rejected. They were looked on with scorn because of their disability. And so I'm sure when they brought, people, brought this fellow to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has no idea what's happening to him. He hasn't heard anything about Jesus. He can't hear. They grab him and bring him to some stranger in this massive crowd of people. Poor guy's probably scared to death. He has no idea what's going on. So what does Jesus do? He is so incredibly kind. The scripture says it, he takes him aside out of the crowd verse 33 he took him aside from the multitude i don't know if he put his arm around him i don't know if he took him by the hand or grabbed him by the arm i don't know how he did that but it says he took him aside from the multitude and then he does a little sign language with him now put yourself in the shoes of the deaf person when you lose one of your five senses your brain learns to compensate by sharpening other senses. So my guess is that the deaf man is really good at watching movements and facial expressions. In my high school years, our church ministry that I grew up in had a ministry to the deaf that I'd worked in some, and I was around a, a number of deaf people. There'd be six or eight or ten of them that would come to church every Sunday and sit on the front row, and they had a guy over on the sitting on the side who would do sign language for them and kind of translate what, what the message was. And, uh, and I had helped him a little bit. I actually translated for a sermon once. I don't know if the deaf people got anything out of it at all, but I did try. The only thing that I remember of all my sign language days is if the preacher got off on a long, rambling story, which you know preachers are apt to do from time to time. Then, uh, and, and if the guy doing the sign language couldn't keep up, he would make the letter R like this, two R's, and he would do this. And I asked him once, what is that? He'd say, that means running rabbits. (laughs) He's running rabbits. So anyway, and and he couldn't keep up with the story. And so all the deaf people would just nod their heads and they'd wait for a minute. Then he'd start signing again. But people who are deaf are very, very good at watching movements and facial expressions. So Jesus takes him away from the crowd he turns him around to look at him. That's the only way he could do this. He puts his fingers in his ears. The deaf guy's thinking, I think he's thinking, oh, okay, he wants to, they're not going to kill me here today. They grabbed me and shoved me into this crowd. Okay, he's going to do something to help me. He, 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 wants, he wants to fix my ears. Then he spits on the ground. He touches the man's tongue. Oh, he wants to try to, he wants to, try to fix my, my speech. He looks up to heaven oh yeah certainly i mean everybody realizes there's god some higher power something up there he looks up to heaven takes his deep breath oh he, he cares a sign of empathy compassion and so the lord, the lord jesus christ in this beautiful scene takes the man away from the throngs of crowds and gets right up next to him fingers in the ears touch his tongue look to heaven deep breath and I'm sure the guy relaxes. Oh, he's going he's to try to do something for me. Puts his fingers in his ears and just says this one word, Be opened, Epapha. And, and instantly, instantly, the man is fixed. He's healed. It is, I was thinking, is it, isn't it so beautiful how Jesus deals with suffering people? He could have just spoken a word and healed the man. But, but he, he deals with him on this very, very personal level. Kind of taking him out of the crowd, communicating by means of these simple signs to calm his fears. And it just reminded me again that, that a, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is very, very personal. God is not some distant spirit who's, who's out there somewhere totally disconnected with our daily struggles. God is a God who is near. Let me just read you four verses. You, can, you want to write the references down you can. We won't turn to them all for sake of time. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. A beautiful one, Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And there are many more of those. I just just leave you those four. But God, God is not disconnected and aloof and way out there. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to those who call on Him. You draw near to God; He will draw near to you. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, we who were once far away, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God God, God is near, He is kind, He cares, and He is so gracious to this deaf man who cannot speak. And after His brief sign language interaction, Jesus just says, Be opened, and suddenly He can hear and He can speak. Now isn't it so fascinating that suddenly, right on the spot, He hears and speaks perfectly. Perfectly. You know, when, when Jesus heals, there's no recovery time. It, it is instant perfection. Jesus is literally creating. Do we we really comprehend that when we think of the the healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, in order to heal perfectly and totally, Jesus is actually creating new body parts by his divine power. This man now has new eardrums. They work perfectly. He can now speak a language. This This will blow your mind. He can now speak a language that he has never heard. And it's the right language. It's the one of the people where he lives. And he can speak it perfectly. He's not speaking like a three-year-old. He's an adult man. He's speaking like an adult man. When when Jesus heals blind people, He is making brand new eyes for that person which work perfectly. When He is fixing crippled hands and arms and legs, He is creating new bone structures and new ligaments and new tendons that all work perfectly. You see, the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ is directly connected to His ability to create. And and for this man, the, 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 the eardrums and all the nerve connections between the ear and the brain that connected the tongue that we use to form sounds and speak a language, Jesus just created on the spot with one word, brand new nerve tissue and wired it all into his brain instantaneously so that it worked perfectly. When Jesus heals, there's no recovery time. There's no learning curve. There's no waiting period. There's no physical therapy. There's no speech therapy. There's no occupational therapy. Everything is perfect instantaneously. Now look at verse 37. They were astonished beyond measure. You think? Yeah, they were in shock. Their minds were blown. And actually, when when it hit me, as I said a minute ago, when it hit me that this guy is now speaking perfectly a language that he has never heard spoken because he's never heard anything, it kind of blows my mind. And, 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 And it's really wildly exciting because this is my Jesus. This is my God, this is my Savior. And as the prophet Jeremiah recorded in Jeremiah thirty two, is there anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing is too hard for God. He knows everything and he can do anything, and he cares, and he's kind, and he has compassion for the suffering, and when it comes when we come to him into humility and his submission, he can help us. And He will. That's the kind of God that I want. And by His grace and mercy, that's the kind of God that I have. And He can be your Jesus and your God and your Savior if you'll come to Him too. You can belong to Him too, and nothing is too hard for Him. So the crowd makes this kind of this drastic understatement. He has done all things well. (laughs) Yeah, indeed He has. He can even make deaf people hear and mute people speak, they said, perfectly. And the the more Jesus told them not to tell everybody, the more they told everybody. Of course they did. So so would we. But part of the reason why Jesus told them that, and we see Jesus saying that many times in the Gospels, don't tell anybody what I did. Part of the reason for that is because they had an incomplete message. Say, what do you mean? Well, see, Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a miraculous, unbelievable healer. He was the Son of God. He was the promised Savior. And He was headed to Jerusalem in a few months to die, to atone for our sin. The message would not be complete until after the resurrection. Let me show you one verse in the Gospel of Luke. Look uh, look at Luke chapter 9. We'll be right back here to chapter 8 in Mark just a second, but look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and I want to begin to read in verse 18. Just a short little five or six verses here. Luke chapter 9, verse 18, we're going to go up to verse 22. And it happened as he was alone praying this is Jesus you see from the context that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying who do the crowds say that I am So they answered and said John the Baptist but some say Elijah others say that one of the old prophets has risen again He said to them but who do you say that I am Peter answered and said the Christ of God. The word Christ meaning the Messiah, the Old, Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament Messiah, the promised Savior. You are the Christ of God. And verse 21, he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. You know what Jesus is telling them? The message is not complete until after the resurrection. You don't have the whole message until after the resurrection. All of these miracles Jesus says that I'm doing, all these things people are saying about me, and all these people I'm trying to help, by the thousands, all these miracles are just the grace of God that he is showing to humanity. Jesus said this, that's not my purpose for being here. I didn't come to fix everybody's physical problems. Because eventually, they're, they're still going to die. All these people, I mean, even people that Jesus raised from the dead, they died. Later, they died again. And, and so, Jesus is saying, my, my number one purpose is not to come and fix everybody's physical problems. And so, so, don't present me to everyone as the guy who can heal everybody. Because even though I can do that... And even though I'm only in my early early thirties, next year I'm going to die, and it's going to be horrifying. But I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. Then you will have the complete message. And that is what I want you to go and tell everybody. But before we close our study today, I do want to take a brief look at the next miraculous feeding of thousands of people that Jesus performed. This is very much like the feeding of the 5,000 that we read about a few weeks ago, but not exactly. In this case, the miracle is is performed for Gentiles. What we saw a couple chapters back with uh, the miracle being performed, it was Jewish people in Galilee. Jesus is still in the Decapolis region. The people have been following him around for three days. They run out of food. This is Jesus' last miracle for a crowd of Gentiles. He will not be back here again ever in his ministry. Once again, there's a few loaves of bread in the crowd, seven, they find a few fish, Jesus once again exercises his creative power, his powers of creation, and literally creates enough food to feed 4,000 men plus women and children. So we could say easily there's 10, 12, 14,000 people that Jesus feeds. This time there are seven large baskets left over, a different word for basket in the Greek text, not the little single meal-sized basket of the previous miracle, but these huge baskets that sometimes take two people to carry if they're heavy. So Jesus, in his final visit to Gentile territory, in his last demonstration of who he is, he feeds thousands of Gentiles who are not even his real followers. They are there for the miracles. They are there for the healings. And yet, in the record of this miraculous event here in Mark 8, we see Jesus saying something that is not recorded anywhere else in the New Testament in verse chapter in verse 2 of chapter 8 Jesus called his disciples to them and he said I have compassion on the multitude now there are several places where the gospel writers say that Jesus had compassion on the multitude they're speaking in the second person saying like Jesus had compassion but this is the only place in the gospels where Jesus says of himself I have compassion And that is a very, very strong word in the Greek text. It's an emotional stirring. It's an emotional yearning. Something that rises up from deep within the inner man. Jesus says, that's who I am. I have compassion. And I want you to remember that about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we live in a very cold and cruel world. We live in a world that may act nice outwardly, but when it comes to unselfish, caring compassion, it is really quite rare. And when you find real compassion, it usually is coming from someone who's trying to live like Jesus. It comes from someone who has a relationship with the Lord Jesus, and they're they're trying to follow in his footsteps. And we see in Jesus' dealings with the deaf man and in his feeding of the 4,000 that our Savior is filled with compassion. He cares about you. He cared about these people who were not Jewish. He cared about these people who were not even his real followers. He, if he cared about them, he cares about you. He says, I have compassion. And I want to wind up our thoughts with just a short reading from Psalm 78. If you would look back at Psalm 78. Psalm seventy-eight, the, the entire Psalm is a is a story of God's gracious, compassionate dealings with Israel even though they kept sinning against Him. It's a long chapter, 72 verses. We're certainly not going to obviously read the entire chapter. just want to select one little phrase out of the middle of Psalm 78. And remember, the whole psalm deals with, with how gracious and kind and compassionate God is with Israel, even though re- they repeatedly, repeatedly keep sinning against Him. But there's one wonderful truth about the Lord, starting in verse 35 up to verse 39. Then they remembered, we're in chapter 78, Psalms, verse 35. Then they remembered that God was their rock, and the Most High God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered Him with their mouth, and they lied to Him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with Him, nor were they faithful in His covenant. But He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away, and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Verse 38 and 39, What a powerful truth about God, He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. Many times, he says, he turned his anger away because he remembered they were but flesh. In other words, God knows how weak we are. God knows how frail we are. God knows how prone we are to sin. Yet he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. It's a grand old song. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There is no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me, and he led me in the way that I should go. Every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his words of love, but I'll never know just why he came to save me, till someday I see his blessed face above. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There is no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much He cared for me. But He, being full of compassion, the Scripture says, forgave their iniquity. Has He done that for you? If He has, has He filled you with compassion and forgiveness for others? If He hasn't, may you come to Christ even this very day. God is full of compassion. He will forgive you. And may God, for we who know the Lord Jesus Christ, may God help us to live out the compassion of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for forgetting the kind of God that you are. Because of our hard, cold, mean-spirited world that we live in, so many folks are so nasty to one another. Sometimes, Lord, even people who profess to know you as their Savior are nasty to one another. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to live out the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't just have compassion on those who liked him. He had compassion on even those who, who were who were there uh, following him with the wrong motivations, with the wrong reasons. He still had compassion on them. In Israel, we see in Psalm 78, over and over and over and over again, rebelled and rejected and, 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 and turned away from God and sinned. Yet he, being full of compassion, forgave God their iniquity so lord we are thankful for your mercy and grace and compassion to us may we live it out to others may we live in the joy and light and peace that comes to us because you are a compassionate god and you care may we humble ourselves before you we pray in jesus name amen